Good morning. We're glad that you're here to worship with us at Rivermont today, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be looking at verse 66 of chapter 22 up through verse 12 of chapter 23. This is the account of Jesus' trial when he was arrested. Last week we looked at the pre-trial. It was in the high priest's home, and under Jewish law, trials had to occur in the daytime. So everything that had happened up to this point was simply preliminary and most likely illegal. And yet today we look at the trial that Jesus underwent before the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council made up of Pharisees and Sadducees, the leading religious leaders, uh, leading religious people in Israel at the time. And it was hard to get that group to agree on much of anything. To get the Pharisees and the Sadducees to agree on much of anything was difficult, and yet they were united in their opposition to the Lord Jesus. They also needed the Roman authorities in order to pursue their aims of putting Jesus to death because the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, had no authority to enact capital punishment in those days. For that, they needed the Roman authorities. They needed Pilate to agree. So there was a religious trial before the Sanhedrin, followed by a political trial before Pilate and Herod. Well, what were the charges against Jesus? Luke 22, beginning in verse 66. When the day came, the assembly of the elders and the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate and the chief priests and the crowds said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all throughout Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether this man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day. For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes by the power of your spirit to see what wonderful things you have for us in your word today. We pray that you would feed us by faith, feed us in your word and feed us in your sacrament. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. 
Well, those of you who know me well might know that I love James Bond. Love James Bond movies. I'm not quite sure what that says about me, but I love them. And I really like our current Bond, uh, Daniel Craig, but for me, the indelible picture of James Bond is the one I grew up with, and that's Roger Moore. I love Roger Moore as James Bond. He's a whole lot more hokey than our current uh, Bond. But the thing they have in common is that they, uh, they pursue the art of the reversal of circumstances. You know what I mean? They, there could be a scene that could be going really badly. Disaster is just about to happen. But in reality, it's all under Bond's control the whole time, right? Things could appear dire, but at the last minute, James Bond's plan is revealed and, and victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat. I love James Bond movies. And in this text, we see something very similar from Jesus. It all appears to be going so badly for him. It appears that at the end of his life, all of his claims to power and authority are being mocked with impunity while Jesus is reduced to a simple criminal. And yet even in the mocking, in the arrest, in the suffering, even in the trial itself, this was all fitting into his plan. It may appear that things were dire, but everything was going exactly according to the plan of God for salvation. Jesus remained a king, ready to snatch victory for us from the jaws of defeat as he went to the cross. See, these leaders, in pursuing Jesus' execution, they perceived that they were acting in God's interests. They had no idea how right they were. They thought they were acting in God's interest by removing one who opposed what they understood to be God's purposes among them. But in reality, they were acting in in God's interest by bringing about Jesus' execution. That was the very means by which God's plans of salvation would be brought about. You see, our God is so sovereign and so powerful that He can even rule and reign and bend the effects of sinful choices to fulfill His plan for our salvation. He rules and He reigns over all. That trial and that execution and the resurrection was the means by which you and I are brought into the kingdom of God. When these priests and scribes led Jesus to the Sanhedrin in verse 66, they asked Him in verse 67 whether He was the Christ. And they asked Him that particular question aimed at trying to trap Him. They tried to trap him religiously to get him to say something blasphemous. And they tried to trap him politically, getting to admit that he's a threat to the ruler of Rome. These religious leaders, you see, Christ, it's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And it brings with it the idea of the anointed king in the line of David. It's the one who's... who's, who's In the line of David, the best king that Israel ever had. And this king, the Messiah, would be anointed by God to kick out all the Romans and restore Israel to its rightful place of power. The Christ, they understood, was the anointed one to get rid of all the enemies of God's people. And here in verse 67, Jesus answers their question about being the Christ and it proves that they really don't want to hear what He has to say. They're simply there to affirm their suspicions And yet Jesus wanted to take the opportunity to clarify exactly what kind of Christ He is and what kind of response that demands from you and from me. The leaders understood 
what Jesus said. They grasped that he claimed divinity by using the title of the Son of Man. And they directly charged him with blasphemy in verse 70. So you're saying that you are the Son of God? They asked. They got him, they thought. He's committed it. He's committed a capital offense under our law. Now all we have to do is get him to admit the same thing before Pilate. You see, Pilate was the representative of Caesar. And yet Pilate couldn't care any less about Jesus' claims to divinity. He really didn't give. He really didn't care at all. He didn't give it credence. Blasphemy was not a capital offense under Roman law, but sedition was. Treason was. And for him to set himself up as a rival king was treasonous in the eyes of Pilate and Caesar, and it could get you executed under Roman law. It all seemed like it was unraveling for Jesus. The jaws of defeat were poised to snap and rob him of his life, but not quite so fast. Jesus' response in verse 70, You said it. It means you say that I am. What are we to make of that response? Was Jesus trying to avoid the question? Not at all. Instead, Jesus was saying, Yes, I am. I agree, but I'm not quite what you might expect. I am the Christ. Yes, I'm the Son of God. But that doesn't mean exactly what you think of when I use that word. I'm guilty as charged, but I'm not guilty of what you think I'm guilty of. Well, what about Jesus' identity is He wanting to clarify for them? What about His identity does He want us to learn from this text? Well, first, He is the Son of Man. He is the Son of God. But that may not mean exactly what we expect it to mean. To the answer to the question of the Sanhedrin, in verse 69, Jesus said, But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. That title, the Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite one for himself. And it, it recalls a text from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 of Daniel 7, where the prophet Daniel describes the scene before the throne of God, where the Father is referred to as the Ancient of Days in that throne room. And there is one in that throne room who is given power over all people and all nations. And yet he's a human. He's the son of man, it says. And at the same time, he's divine. This is a prophecy of Jesus who would be both. He was incarnate. That's a Bible word that means God taking on human flesh, just as Daniel 7 said. Jesus retains his humanity and his divinity in one person. And by coming a human, by becoming a man, Jesus took on Himself our flesh and He took our limits. God took a body, as we've seen all through this Gospel of Luke. And He fulfilled the expectations that God has for you and for me as a man. He was perfectly righteous. He was perfectly loving. He was perfectly selfless. He perfectly gave Himself up to divine guidance. He was perfectly submissive. He willingly took on Himself the suffering of living in this broken world. He was the ideal human being. He was the best man. He did exactly what God the Father expects of humanity. He's the Son of Man. While at the same time in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is also divine. He rules and He reigns over all nations and all languages and all people and every single kingdom on the face of the earth must bow before Him It says in Daniel 7, His kingdom can never be destroyed. All authority of heaven and on earth are His. It sounds a lot like the Great Commission, doesn't it? Because it's a quotation. 
The Great Commission is a quotation of the rule in the reign of Jesus as the Son of Man and the Son of God from Daniel chapter 7. That's an interesting answer to the question they asked, isn't it? They asked him, are you the Christ? Are you the one who's going to reign in the line of David and get rid of all the enemies of God's people? Are you the one who is going to restore God's people to glory and honor? That's what they wanted to know, but they didn't want his answer. And they wouldn't believe his answer. Can you see now why Jesus answered as he did? He answered, yes, I am the one, I am the Messiah, the one who has come to conquer your enemies. But those whom you perceive to be your enemies aren't the real ones. Your enemies aren't simply the Romans who are trying to oppress you. Your problem goes much deeper than that. He came as the king to conquer our enemies, but he came to conquer our most deadly enemies of sin and death and flesh and the devil. He has come to ascend to his throne through the grave and the resurrection. He has come to conquer the enemies of our soul. He's come to rid this world of the sin that separates us from our Father. He came to take on a human body to live a perfect life so that He might go to the cross as the perfect sacrifice and stand in our place paying our debt so that you and I might be restored to lives of glory, lives of reconciliation with our Father. Yes, Jesus was guilty of being the Christ. Yes, Jesus is guilty of being the Messiah. But it doesn't mean exactly what the Sanhedrin expected. He has come to deal with the enemies of God's people, as the Apostle Paul says, by becoming a sin offering for us. By being marred and broken and sacrificed for our sin. He's guilty, but not in the way they thought. And he also, as the Son of Man, will absolutely reign in glory. Absolutely He's coming to to, to pursue a renewed humanity, the people of God. And yet the way it's different from what they expect is His vision of the people of God is for Jews and Greeks and Romans and Africans and Asians and all the peoples of the world united under one lordship of of Jesus Christ by faith in His name. You see, their problem was their understanding and their picture of the kingdom of God was setting their sights far too low. For Jesus is a cosmic king. He has come to rule and reign over our personal sin. And he's also come to rid the effects of sin in this entire creation. He's come to bring a new heavens and a new earth. He's come to remove every taint of sin where he rules and he reigns over this entire world for his glory and our good. Yes, he's the king to restore glory to God's people. But it's a people of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded that Jesus is the king who sits on the throne this week. I need to be reminded of that when I see the news reports of our brothers and sisters in Oregon who were gunned down by an evil man wanting to kill Christians. I need to be reminded that Jesus is a victorious king. And yet he was victorious by giving his life to defeat evil. I need to remember this because Jesus said from now on, meaning from that moment as Jesus went to the cross, was raised from the dead and ascended as king, he rules and he reigns over this universe. I need to remember that when I see the evil in my own heart and in our world. 
We need to remember that all of this evil are the grasps of a defeated foe. Our flesh and the devil. How ironic from this text. The one who was being judged is going to stand as judge over all. Over them and over us. And yet by faith in His work and faith in His name, our judge has become our advocate. Our judge is the one who pleads our cause, who pleads our case for forgiveness, for grace. He pleads our case by His own blood. The one being judged will be the judge so that we can be set free by faith in His name. How ironic that the one who was being dishonored here will be honored as king. One day he will be honored and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and yet he is king over a redeemed but but a messy people like us. A people who are helpless and being, being his followers, participating in his kingdom means acknowledging our helplessness, acknowledging our need to cry out to him because he needs to put us back together. The one who is dishonored will be honored one day. And the one who appears under the power of darkness about having the the jaws of defeat to snap over his life, that same one brings the power of God to bear, to renew and restore and forgive and keep you and me safe for eternity. He's guilty of being the Son of Man being the Son of God, but it doesn't mean what they thought it meant. He is guilty of being sent to the cross for our sin, that He might rule and reign in a restored world. He's also guilty of being the King, being the Messiah, but it may not be quite as we expect. It certainly wasn't what Pilate and Herod expected. In verse 1, Jesus was sent to Pilate, And the question was a little bit different. He said, are you the king of the Jews? In verse 3. You see, Pilate was disinterested, as I said a moment ago, in Jesus' blasphemy. But the charge of sedition, the charge of leading a rebellion, that was of interest to Pilate. The leaders charged him with being a king, leading a rebellion to try to kick out the Romans so that he could be put to death by Pilate, by Rome. But Pilate, in verse 4, suggested this Jesus didn't look much like a rabble-rouser to him. He didn't sound much like one who was trying to stir up a rebellion. And yet the leaders protested all the more. And finally, he did what all politicians do in the end. He passed the buck. He sent him to Herod. See, Herod was a client king. He was a half-Jew that Caesar let rule over part of Israel. This is the Herod Antipas who had a responsibility over Galilee and he just so happened to be in Jerusalem for Passover. So off went Jesus to be before Herod, another authority, so Pilate could wash his hands, he thought. This, by the way, was the same Herod who stole his brother Philip's wife. This woman who also happened to be his niece, he made her his bride and John the Baptist opposed this Herod for that, and he lost his head for it. 
If you read the account of that occasion in Mark chapter 6, you see there that there was a twinge of conscience on Herod's part. He was, he was a little bit afraid, it says in Mark chapter 6. He was afraid because he thought this Jesus might be John the Baptist raised from the dead. It might be the one he, put, he had put to death now come back to torment him, Herod thought. But by now, all of that is gone. By this point, Herod's conscience had become so hardened, his His heart toward the Lord was so seared that he simply was eager to meet Jesus in verse 8 because he thought, maybe I'll get a little entertainment out of it. Maybe this Jesus will do a miracle for me. Maybe he'll do a party trick for me. Maybe he could amuse me for a little while. They mocked Jesus. They dressed him up in an old royal robe, it says in verse 11. They dressed him up to play the part of a king. And then they asked him to perform. Do what I want you to do, Jesus. Do, do one of those miracles. Do one of those signs. Fulfill my expectations. Entertain me. It was like Herod was treating Jesus like a caged animal at a zoo that maybe he would perform for him. Herod's heart was hardened and he had grown to be a bully. I think he did this because in part he was scared. Deep down he was afraid and now he mocked and he ridiculed and he bullied Jesus as a means to deal with his own insecurities, his own fears. He used his power as a means to cover over all of his fearful weaknesses because, friends, that's what bullies do. There's someone in your life, whether it's a child or an adult, who is bullying you, who is mocking you, dollars to donuts, it's because they are afraid. Deep down, they are insecure and afraid that you might find out something and expose them as the frauds that they really are. And yet, Jesus does expose. He exposed Herod, the bully, by not giving him what he wanted. He exposed Herod... He exposed Herod's not having any power to do what he thought he could do. Herod thought that he could rule and he could reign over Jesus. He could put him to death and be done with him. Jesus appeared weak, but Herod was the one who was truly weak. Jesus exposed this bully for who he really is. He refused to speak in verse 9. Herod wanted Jesus to give him an answer and Jesus simply was silent. Why? Because Jesus is nobody's play toy. Jesus is no one's caged animal. Jesus is the king and he will pursue his will. He will not bend his knee to our desires. Because his will is perfect. His plan is perfect. His ways are perfect. And yet so often like Herod, you and I want a king that will fulfill our expectations. We want a king who's going to do something the way we like it. A king who's going to follow our bidding, pursuing what we think needs to be done in this world. But friends, Jesus is king and we're not. And whenever we bid him to follow our desires versus the other way around, just like he did with Herod, often Jesus will disrupt our plans. He will disrupt our lives lovingly and yet disruption will come all the same. He so often sends that disruption into our plans and our lives so that our grip will be loosened from something that we've laid hold of, something we've grasped hold of that we think gives us life, and yet it won't. He so often sends disruptions. He fails to meet our expectations so that our grip is loosened, so that we can lay hold of Him. 
See, there may be something going on in your life where it makes you doubt that He is King. Because you're not getting what you want. You're not getting what you think you might need. But if you're anything like me, perhaps your God all too often is a God of comfort and a God of ease. And Jesus may be loving you and ruling over you very, very well by not giving you or me what we want. He at times loves us. He loves us enough to disrupt our lives from clinging onto those false gods of, of false security. He's not going to fulfill our expectations if it means we won't have empty hands to grasp something better. And that's Him. So often He sends disruption. He refuses to do what we want Him to do so that our hands are open to receive what He wants to give to you and me. I wonder where Jesus is disrupting your life today. Where might it be in mercy that He is loving you too much to let you remain exactly like you are right now. Friends, this is a story of great reversal. This is a text of a Jesus who was guilty, but not guilty of what they expect. He is guilty of being the Son of Man, but as the Son of Man, He's guilty because He took our sin upon Himself. He is the Messiah. He does rule and He does reign, and yet He ruled and He reigned through going to the cross in the grave. We live because He died. You and I thrive because He suffered. We have the privilege and the joy of bowing our knee to one who loves us so much. And yet even the difficult things, even the challenging things in our lives, He has under His control. Will you bow the knee to this King, to this Messiah who rules today? Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see the truth of where you're ruling and reigning. We pray that you would give us soft hearts to where you may be disrupting our comforts so that we are ready to be given something much grander, and that is you. Keep our arms and our fingers wide open to receive whatever you have for us, beginning with your grace and your mercy in the gospel. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.